Hey everyone, I'm Tyler Crow. Uh, welcome to Where the Money Is. Well, it's Thanksgiving, and I'm sure you're all getting ready to feast with the family. And we at The Fool, we're kind of doing the same. So this week we're going to take a break from our normally scheduled uh, Where the Money Is program, and we're going to play an interview I did with Gregory Zuckerman, a Wall Street journalist and author of The Frackers, the outrageous inside story of the new billionaire wildcatters, where we'll discuss his book and some of the people in that book that are shaping the oil and gas industry today. So enjoy, and we'll see you next week. We are here with Greg Zuckerman, Wall Street Journal reporter and author of The Frackers, the outrageous inside story of the new billionaire wildcatters. And Greg, just to kind of get us started off here, you know, really quick, how does a guy who is a Wall Street journalist who, you know, kind of covers the, the hedge funds and private equity just basically say to himself, I'm going to go to Texas and Oklahoma and find out what's going on in this shale revolution or what's been happening in the war, in the in the U.S.? It's a good question. So I guess what happened was a few years ago, I looked around and I sort of determined that there's really nothing more important, no business story more important and also more interesting than this energy revolution. And it hadn't really been written, the story of how it began, uh, who's behind it, um, why it happened in America and to some unlikely wildcatters behind it, and why wasn't it people like Exxon and Chevron and and the big giants. So on the one hand, um, it was a business story, and I'm a business writer. On the other hand, I just thought it hadn't been written, the the story behind the story. So I kind of thought it'd be a nice challenge to figure it all out. Yeah, and, you know, when I... the funny thing is, when I look at the title, it says the frackers, the hour, you know, of these billionaire wildcatters. At first, they think the casual reader might look at it and say, "Oh, why do I want to learn about these guys who develop hydraulic fracturing?" But you know, if you kind of take the hydraulic fracturing part of it aside, when I read it over the weekend, it, it, what really grabbed me in this book was kind of the triumph of the entrepreneurial spirit and kind of the courage and conviction that these guys had uh, going out and doing what they did. So you know, could you just like share with us like the setting of what was going on at the time when these guys, you know, got their start and what they went through to get there? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. It's um, the story of um, unlikely characters stubborn entrepreneurs who do something that the rest of the world thought they couldn't. They, they ignore the experts and they, they figure out how to get a humongous amount of uh, oil and gas from, from parts of the country that people have given up on, all the experts have given up on. And yeah, on the one hand, it's sort of an energy story and maybe it's not for everyone, but it's really more a story of characters and, 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 personalities and just like any kind of great western um, or, or all the, the, the movies and books about the yeah, oil and gas industry and when, and when so you say set a character sorry sorry to cut you off there um, you, you really did get a quite a selection of characters when, you, when you're looking at these guys I've got to imagine that when you were digging into the background of some of these guys and getting to know their story did you ever have like this you can't make this stuff up sort of moment because when you get you read some of these ones I'm just like how did this happen? Yeah, so I was I was lucky and, and had a lot of good fortune in some ways. When you when you start digging into some of these characters, let's say Harold Ham. So Harold Ham is such a American archetype. He's a rags to riches American story. He was born the thirteenth of thirteen children, little town in Oklahoma. Um, his 
family was so poor, they were sharecroppers, that he couldn't even go to school each year until around Christmas time because until then he had to help his family in, in the fields pick cotton and watermelon. And only Christmas time around was it was so cold that there wasn't any picking left to be done so he could finally start going to school each year. And he didn't go to college, didn't know anything about geology or, or engineering, but he had this hunger to find oil, as he still have in some parts of this country. And he wanted to make some money. Again, he grew up dirt poor, so the only people around him with any wealth were oil and gas guys. So he said, okay, I'll go find oil and gas. But he didn't know anything about how to do it. Um, I keep coming back in, in the book to the fact that the people who led this revolution are not the people you would have expected. It's wildcatters, and again, some people like Harold Hamm with really no background. So again, so Ham, he, he wanted to get into industry, so he started off just sort of cleaning out tankers. He kind of a long rake climbed in, and that was his business, cleaning the, the, the muck at the bottom of tankers, and made some money doing that, and did some water transportation, and started doing, made some money in a company doing that, but he hungered to find oil and gas, and he set out uh, to find it in Oklahoma, and, and he was a wildcatter, and did pretty well, but he heard about what was going on, and the, the promise of the North Dakota region, the Bakken up in Montana, and, and also North Dakota, and all the oil, all the oil that was packed in limestone in different formations uh, down below the surface in those areas. So he started this company, Continental Resources, and they went out there and they said, hey, let's go be the ones to find it. And they leased up more acres than anybody else. But he was a little naive in some ways. He, he wasn't the first person to realize there was a lot of oil and gas, especially oil, down below the surface in that region. And people had struck out in the past, and it was a boom and bust area. And he said, yeah, we're going to do hydraulic fracturing or fracking. We're going to combine it with horizontal drilling, and that's just sort of drilling down vertically and turning that drill bit 90 degrees and going horizontal, which is sort of the key to this revolution because there are a lot of formations that are just too narrow and long to really tap at vertically, so you have to go horizontally. Um, but he, he leased up again uh, more acres than anybody else, but for years they were having problems, and even as recently as 2006 or so, they tried to sell their acreage to, to other people, and nobody wanted it. The big guys didn't want it, the small guys, medium-sized guys. No one really wanted Harold Ham's acreage. So all he could really do was keep working on it. And he told his guys, let's try to make it happen. And Continental Resources went public in 2007. The stock didn't really do that much when it first came out. And even the guy working for Harold Ham, uh, Brian Hoffman, who was sort of responsible for telling his boss, you know what, forget about the Montana area. We should really be focusing on North Dakota. He sold all his shares when the stock went public in 07. So even he didn't believe in what they were doing. But it's a story of persistence and resilience and creativity. They kept working on it um, in the last few years. They finally figured out how to get a lot of oil from that region. And today the Bakken area produces over a million barrels a day from our nation's nine million barrels. And Harold Hamm's company, Continental Resources, has made more money than anybody from this whole thing. They, they, they own more acreage than anybody in the uh, in the Bakken. And today, Harold Hamm, who, who again, didn't, didn't even go to school each year until around Christmas time because he was a sharecropper, the son of a sharecropper, today he's worth about $17 billion. He's uh, one of the wealthiest men in the world. And he, um, unfortunately, is going through a divorce right now, but his uh, wife is going to walk away with a billion dollars and maybe even more. She's a... Uh, She's contesting. She's appealing a recent uh, uh, judge's decision. So it's a real rags to riches story, and it's about individuals who 
you would not have expected to, to lead this American energy revolution. Yeah, and, you know, us being uh, on the, I guess, the investing side of it, you can even see, like, watching Continental Resources uh, as a company, you can really see, like, the bravado, basically, of, of Harold Hamm almost come out in that kind of story. You know, to even recently where he's, one of his company moves was to remove all oil hedges from his company to say, we're going to beat oil, uh, OPEC. And, it, you know, you can see that background of his complete determination of wanting to get this done, and it, it still comes out today. Uh, I, I really find that fascinating. And, and not just that, but the amount of turmoil that all of these guys went through to get there. It, it wasn't just like this, uh, you know, the light bulb came on in 2011 and all of a sudden it just happened. It took many, many years for this to happen. And like you said in the book with, uh, I guess you could give the example of George Mitchell and what he went through. Yeah, that's exactly right. You needed bravado. You needed confidence. You needed some maybe uh, overconfidence. Um, a lot of the individuals I write about in my book, you can argue, really believe in themselves uh, to a fault. So you talk about somebody like Norbert McClendon, who um, bought up so many shares of his own company, Chesapeake uh, Energy, that uh, as the stock went up, he became a multi-billionaire by 2008. He was worth about $3 billion, um, and then he saw it all collapse. And it collapsed because he was successful uh, in, in some ways. He was right that we could find lots and lots of natural gas in our country in shell formations all over the country. And by then, Chesapeake uh, Energy had leased up so much acreage, more than anybody, about three times the size of, of New Jersey, and they were producing so much natural gas. They thought they were doing well, but in the end, it kind of helped create a glut. And in, within a few weeks, I write about it in, in the Frackers, Aubrey McClendon went from a guy worth $3 billion to having a margin call from Goldman Sachs, and he owed banks over $500 million that he had borrowed to buy his own shares and to buy natural gas futures and to make huge new bets. And so instead of being like everybody else would, sort of diversifying his portfolio. These people believed in what they were doing so much. They had this remarkable amount of confidence, and you needed to, because if you could ignore the experts, and again, all the experts were saying that America was running out of natural gas and oil, so don't even bother to do much um, prospecting and wildcatting in this country, because we were, we were through. That's what everybody said. All the, the geologists and, and the Wall Street experts and government officials. So guys like Governor McClendon needed a remarkable amount of self-confidence to ignore what the experts were saying. And they were right and the experts were wrong, but sometimes it cost them in the process. And yeah, you had mentioned George Mitchell. So George Mitchell, not related to the, the, the former senator, George Mitchell is sort of the father of this whole um, revolution, this renaissance of American energy production in this country. And he, once again, he, he was the first one to ignore and scoff when the experts said, George, you're a fool. Yeah, you guys are trying to tap natural gas from shale in Texas, but all the big guys, I mean, um, ExxonMobil, I find this fascinating, ExxonMobil's headquarters are in Irving, Texas. They are literally, not even um, um, an exaggeration here, and even figuratively, they literally are sitting on top of the Barnett Shale formation, and yet they weren't doing any drilling in their own backyard, their literal backyard. They were going anywhere but America, offshore, Africa, Asia, and it took George Mitchell to say, yeah, Exxon doesn't believe in the Barnett Shale, but we're going to prove how you can get natural gas and remarkable amounts of it from the Barnett and from shale rock 
And they did. I mean, it was an up and down. It was a long process, and it took them um, years. I could talk about how it happened, but they did. They proved the experts wrong. Yeah, actually, I want to go back to one thing you were just talking with Aubrey McClendon. Uh, you know, it's been a year since you wrote the book, but you know, when I when I went back and read it recently, there was one quote that like really stood out to me, and it was one of the reasons we wanted to bring you in. Is you know, he sat down years before uh, the natural you know natural gas. It took off like it did. And he, you know, casually sitting in front of some of his friends, he said, we could break the natural gas market in the United States, thinking about the amount of natural gas that he could, could bring on. And he was right. You know, within three or four years, the amount of volume of gas that we brought on was just amazing. And the price fell through the floor. And, you know, kind of going back to what you said of that sheer confidence kind of took him out a little bit in the sense where he had so much confidence in himself, he even predicted it. But at the same time, wasn't quite ready to, you know, walk away from it. And, you know, as you wrote in your book, there was some extenuating circumstances. Um, What I find so striking about this quote is that it seems we're kind of in a situation today, very eerily similar to this natural gas one, but with oil, you know, where production is the point of booming, where we're, you know, we've replaced almost all of America's imports of light, sweet, crude with domestic supplies. And it's a It'll be really interesting to see how the players in this book, you know, the Harold Hams of the world, are, you know, how are they going to handle it this time around? Yeah, it's going to be fascinating. You talk about Aubrey. So Aubrey, after getting kicked out of this company that he started or co-founded, Chesapeake Energy, for a series of sort of aggressive slash reckless moves, uh, even though he was, a real, he was a real visionary, he's restarted his career and has been able to scoop up a lot of acreage that turns out to be really, really valuable uh, in the Utica area, um, Ohio and elsewhere, Texas. And until recently, people kind of said, wow, you are really on the comeback trail, Aubrey. And they were very impressed. And he's raised billions of dollars of new money from investors. And he seemed like he was on on his way to a new fortune, uh, an oil-based fortune. But now oil prices are tumbling. And We'll see what happens. His new company has floated debt. It's it's junk rated. It's bottom of the barrel in the junk market. It's highly levered. If oil prices strengthen from here, then he'll be fine and he'll have started this new comeback and we'll be wealthy anew and uh, we'll be among those helping us lead us towards energy independence because they're finding a lot of oil in some of these new formations. But if oil keeps tumbling, this is trouble once again, and I completely agree. He has made a bet uh, before it was on higher natural gas prices. Now it's on higher oil prices, and he's among the biggest potential losers if oil keeps tumbling. Like you said, Continental and Harold Ham also. I mean, I'm not worried about him. He's worth about $16 billion or so right now, so uh, you don't have to fret too much. But, yeah, if oil prices keep collapsing, then some of these companies that have um, showed us how to get all this oil and gas – in the end, the nation will benefit, and individuals and consumers, but they themselves will suffer because uh, it's a commodity. And if oil and gas keeps falling, these guys aren't going to make nearly as much as they'd expect it. Sure. And and so just kind of looking into the future a little bit, you know, this technology that these guys have developed and, and you know, brought a revolution in the, in the United States, it has a huge implications for global oil production and could even really, like, reshape the way we think about even geopolitics and things like that. But we still haven't seen a lot of headway in the development of shale or shale development internationally. And I guess I wanted to ask you, 
and so our readers will know what has made the American experience so unique. You know, why are we not talking about the Argentinian version of Harold Hamm or the Chinese equivalent of Aubrey McClendon or something like that? It's funny. When I first started the project, I assumed the first uh, chapter, as it were, would be America. And then, like you say, the rest of the world will catch up quickly. There'll be the next chapter because there is a lot of shale, oil, and gas all over the world, Argentina, Mexico, the U.K., Poland, China, Russia. I can go on and on, and some of these formations are packed with even more oil and gas than in America. And yet, I'm more convinced than ever that it's going to be an American revolution that um, others won't be able to emulate for years to come. Eventually, they'll catch up. It's going to take years. And there are a lot of reasons. Some are a lot of advantages that this country has. Um, some are God-given, and some are... Um, not. So some things that we, we are fortunate to have, we've got more access to fresh water in this country than some other nations like China. You still need fresh water to do fracking. We've got our formations of shale aren't quite as deep. They're deep, but not as deep as in some other places. So they're easier to get at. Um, and we've got a pipeline system we've developed. We've got capital markets. I mean, the key to this whole thing are entrepreneurs who can make a lot of money and can roll the dice. And in other countries, there's a cultural thing, too, where you can't take the kind of risks you can in America. You talk to somebody from Siemens in Germany, and I've talked to people outside the country, and they are so impressed by what we've done in this nation. And largely it's because you can make a big bet in this country and fail. You can fail and restart your career like in Auburn McClendon, and you can't do that in other countries. So there's a cultural aspect, too. But it's also the fact that we've got property rights uh, in our nation and mineral rights. Landowners, farmers own the mineral rights. You and I own the mineral rights underneath our homes. So if an entrepreneur knocks on our door and wants to cut a deal because he wants to try drilling in our backyard, you can cut a deal with them and for, for whatever price you agree on, lease your acreage. And you can't do that in other nations. You go to England, the Crown owns the uh, oil and gas, the mineral rights below people's homes. So I've been to England for my book, and you can make a strong argument why they should start fracking. The North Sea oil is drying out, drying up, and Europe doesn't want to be so dependent on Putin and Russia. You, you can go on and on. But then again, you go to a pretty part of the country, and you, it's hard to make an argument to someone why they should allow trucks to come and noise and, and air pollution and noise pollution. I would do it in my backyard if I was being compensated for it, but if these people aren't being compensated for it, then it's hard to make that argument. So we've got real advantages in this nation that will make this give us an economic, um, I would argue, that's going to give us a leg up on everybody else, maybe even domination um, economically for years to come. All right. So... Molly Fool here, you know, we're very in individual investor focused and sometimes the experiences that we have in life or in, in the in the research that we do, you know, it, it helps to shape our investment thesis or the way that we look at the world. And just from your own personal take, from the whole experience you went through writing this book and, and the people you got to know and the understanding that you have, what was like for you personally, what was the biggest takeaway that may have shaped the way you invest or, or, or something like that? Funny. Uh, I guess the biggest takeaway is how wrong, how right you can be on the company and the technology, on the technology and the company and how wrong you can be on the stock because you got to remember this, these are commodity products. So again, Chesapeake Energy, they were right and all the, the skeptics were wrong. 
in that they figured out how you can get, and, and others did too, you can get lots of natural gas from shale. So they were right about that, and yet their stock tumbled because natural gas prices fell. They produced, they and others produced too much natural gas, among the reasons why the stock went down. So you could be so right on the companies. Um, now companies are embracing using a lot more sand for fracking. So there are a number of sand providers that soared. Um, emerged technologies as a stock that went from went public around I think around 20 or so and uh, hit about 120, 125 or so early this year because we're using more sand. So hey, you know that company and you know what they're doing and they're embracing it. It makes sense to be buying that stock. But then lo and behold, oil and gas prices have collapsed or, or tumbled in recent weeks and emerge has tumbled down to around $80 a share. So you can be really right. It's just very. Um, um, trouble. It, it, it's reass- it, 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 it's a, it underscores this theme that you can be really right on the technology and on the companies, but you've got to remember that oil and gas is a commodity product. It goes up, it goes down, just and the stocks are going to be affected uh, as a result. Yeah, so we've been talking with Gregory Zuckerman, uh, author of The Frackers, The Outrageous Inside Story of the New Billionaire Wildcatters. Greg, thanks very much for your time, but i got to ask two quick questions before you leave. Uh, number one, what are you working on next? Um, I'm doing a kid's book with my two sons. Kid's book? Uh, All right. Sports-related. It's very different. So we're writing about some, uh, some superstars who've overcome certain things in their in their youth, and it's more inspirational for kids. So it's a very kind of different project. <laughs> but I'm still looking for the next a meaty business uh, narrative, a uh, great story that I can share with people. There's some things I'm intrigued by, but there's nothing that I've decided on yet. All right. Uh, okay. And then last one, sports fan. I know New York area. I'm assuming you're a Knicks fan. Uh, I need to ask, on a scale from one to Willis Reed walking through the tunnel in the 70 NBA Game 7 NBA Finals, how excited are you about Phil Jackson back in New York City? I like his plan. I like the strategy. I like the triangle. I like ball movement. And I like the idea of planning long term. So they're going to be awful this year. And it's better to be awful than mediocre. Nice to get some draft picks. Quite honestly, we, we have a, a, an owner who's just so horrible and undermined things and made terrible, terrible decisions for years with Isaiah and Gomek even earlier. So um, anything that reduces uh, the Dolan's involvement in the team is good. So hopefully Jackson's plan will work long term. Well, I'm a Celtics fan, so I'm kind of a little miserable myself as the last couple of years. But Greg, yeah, thank you, you very much. You got a plan, though. You got, to have, you got good management, you got a plan. So yeah, that is, that is true. Greg, thank you very much for your time. Oh, great to be here. <laughs>